0: Hello and welcome to FuturePod, I'm Peter Hayward. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today our guest is Dr. Karen Newkirk. Karen is a futurist, facilitator and educator. Global human development has driven her passion and led to a degree in adult and community education, a master in business strategic foresight, and a recently completed PhD in business on the market for Indigenous Australian knowledge. She is the Principal of Creating Eternity, established in 2010, and she has facilitated workshops for federal, state, and local government, as well as corporations and community organisations. She sees the value of foresight embedded in First Nations knowledge, not only in its applicability to the Australian environment, but in mitigating anthropogenic climate damage globally and creating just human societies. Welcome to FuturePod, Karen. Thank you, Peter. Great to have you. So, question one. The story question, what is, what is the Karen Newkirk story? How did you become a member of the Futures and Foresight community?
1: Well, at 15, I started with this passion for wanting humanity to be the best that it can be. I had some good teachers at Mount Gambier High School in South Australia Uh, Ancient history was a bit of a disappointment because it only started 300 BC about, and it was only about politics. But the teacher, Tim Jones, was uh, concerned with modern injustices and would always refer to them, and it was him who told us that the American military were putting warheads on dolphins and using them to put them on submarines and ships. Yes. And I wrote to President Nixon in 1973 about stopping doing that. And uh, and I didn't get a reply. Um, <laughs> I was concerned about the French nuclear tests that were taking place in the Pacific. And they were all over the news at the time. I was concerned about smoking. And I had a pet peeve of my own about uh, houses being built on the side of Mount Gambier all the way up to the lip. I thought it was so wrong because of spoilt the natural beauty of the crater and I thought that it was unfair that the view was only then available to people who could buy and build houses up all the way up to the lip. Mm. So when the local YMCA decided along with apparently all other YMCA's that they needed to have a junior board they contacted the local high schools and my name was put forward and I went along and the youth worker who was running it said he really didn't know what the junior board was supposed to do, so maybe we should just follow whatever we were interested in. And there were only about eight of us or six, I think. So we had three campaigns. The first one was uh, stopping the French nuclear tests in the Pacific. Yep. I and others. We took tape recorders and interviewed youth in our town and sent them to the um, French embassy. And uh, we had an anti-smoking campaign where we filled a huge jar with cigarette butts and asked people to guess how many were in there. And meanwhile, we handed out information about uh, stopping smoking. One of the things that really struck me at the time was so many people said to me, you will never stop people from smoking. Mm. And I was kind of floored that uh, like, I wondered how these people thought anything ever changed. But... You know, at the time, we were surrounded with smoke. It was, you couldn't walk down the street, you couldn't go to a restaurant. We were surrounded in smoke in the 1970s. And so, yeah, to some people, it was unimaginable that that could be changed.
0: Yeah, and normalised to the point where people are now offended if you smoke around them.
1: Yes, that's huge turnaround. So I have seen change. (laughs) Um, But the third campaign was about the houses being built on the side of Mount Gambier and and we wanted the council to buy that six blocks of prime real estate land back and reserve it for a park. So I wrote a letter to the newspaper and we started a petition and I wrote to This Day Tonight and a film crew came down from Adelaide and uh, interviewed us. And I think significantly, you know, thinking about other forces at play and players in force. In 1974, which was the second year of what turned out to be a a two-and-a-half-year campaign, it was the International Year of Youth. The YMCA Junior Board was invited to speak to the Mount Gambier City Council and, you know, it took two-and-a-half years, but eventually that's exactly what happened and that six prime real estate blocks is uh, now, Sealy Reserve, uh, is still there all these years on. Awesome. Yeah, so that was my first taste of shaping human futures and I, you know, learned heaps. I also volunteered at the YMCA and I volunteered at the Department for Community Welfare as a community aid. So I I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do when I left school, but within five months of leaving school, I met an international human development organisation called the Institute of Cultural Affairs And they spoke about bending history, which was their way of talking about shaping human futures. Mm. And from the studies that they'd done on human society, they had a theory of a social process triangle. Uh, They saw that, that three main elements, economic, political and cultural elements of society were out of balance and that the economic was dominating. And they saw that the cultural realm was or and should be the most influential it's the one that drives
2: mm.
1: human behavior and so they worked on human story and human symbols as a way of of changing human futures and they developed methodologies called the or now called the technology of participation or TOP which is facilitation techniques now and they did that at the time through in the 70s and 80s, through human development projects. They had demonstrations in 24 time zones around the world and then extended those and they had community meetings and both of these work specifically on desired futures. So their strategic planning began with past, the present assets and future hopes and dreams. So building a vision for a community. Mm -hmm. That was really where I learnt that, vision is very different to the sorts of goals, strategic goals for something like a five-year plan. The other thing that were part of these methods was identifying underlying challenges. So I witnessed the success of these methods when I worked in a village in Peru. So when the five-year strategic plan was completed, they had infrastructure, potable water, roads, telephone, the clinic, health training, preschool and early learning program, agricultural improvements, small businesses and community cohesion, which they had heaps of community cohesion to begin with, but they they enhanced that by working together on this plan. And these people were people who got up at five o'clock in the morning and worked in their fields or in their little shops all day and then they would come with these lanterns to meetings every Tuesday night And there were 500 people in the village, but there were about 50 people who turned up to these meetings with their little kerosene lanterns to discuss what had happened in the last week and what needed to happen the next week in relation to their planning. In 2003, when I went back for, I think, a third time, they had several restaurants and a resort in this little village. Yeah, wow, indeed. and. Um, This was completely laughable back in 1979, but the people there Mm. who (laughs) still had this original document were so proud to show me Mm. that part of their vision had been to have a restaurant. It had been an uh, image of a preferred future that was unlikely and pretty unthinkable because People from Lima were very unlikely to drive down the Pan-American Highway for over an hour on Pothole Dangerous Road. Instead of turning right to go to the beach, turn left and go for another 12 kilometres up a very dusty, dirty, pothole road to a community that had no electricity, no potable water, and then go there for a restaurant. But in 2003, they are very Popular restaurants, and the most popular has 600 or had 600 diners for lunch every um, every Saturday and Sunday, and and now that's expanded. They've put on a, a third story, so it is just an unbelievable story. But the underlying challenge in Peru is racial and gender discrimination. And when I was there and saw the local Peruvian woman who was managing this restaurant, who was a lot shorter than me, and I'm only five foot two, so she was like 148 centimetres. When I saw her stand up to a 190 centimetre light-skinned man from Lima and completely disarming him with her charming smile, I could see that deep change had really happened and that was the point of the project to Mm -hmm. demonstrate that people could shape their own futures and, and uh, not be looked down upon. Then.
0: And you don't need elites doing it for them, do you?
1: No, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So jumping forward a bit, uh, in 1984 I um, went to work and live on the Anangal, Pitjantjatjara Yankunytjatjara lands. For the non-Australian
0: listeners, you might want to explain where and what those lands are.
1: Yeah, Anangu Pitjantjatjara Yankunytjatjara lands are the top left hand, so northwest ten percent of South Australia. That's just below Uluru. In 1981, they were granted the Pitjantjatjara Yankunytjatjara Land Rights Act. At that time, their land was supposedly under their control. During these years, for about eight years. The Australian government had a self-determination policy, short-lived, eight years, but the way that played out on the ground was rather than you determine your future, it was much more like you tell us how you are going to become like us.
0: Assimilation was always the code, wasn't
1: it? Yeah, but it was still a different and hopeful era because there were quite a few people who who believed in self-determination and were, were trying to work for that. So during that 10 years, I learned a lot. I learned that Pindanjara and Yunkanjara people knew a lot about how to manage the dominant society. They knew a lot about self-determination and it occurred to me that no matter how literate or numerate they became, this, the self-determination that they wanted was going to continue to elude them as long as the non-Indigenous population of Australia continued to not trust them to determine their own futures. Hmm. And um, Bunaba uh, Human Rights Commissioner June Oscar worded this problem succinctly this year. So in 2021, this problem is pretty much the same. Uh, She said, we are not given ever the authority and capacity to make the decisions that affect our lives You know, Australian society is the pool from which all non-Indigenous staff go to work either on Aboriginal lands as doctors, nurses, store managers, community managers, CDP or employment program managers. And also it's the pool from where the staff for all in the 80s, 80 government departments were intervening or part of the lives of the Anunnul communities. So all of the staff that work for all of those come from this pool of Australian society. And so when I left in 1994, uh, on the one hand, uh, it was still hopeful because it was before 1996. And uh, I guess that's a whole different history that we probably don't have time for. But its a kind of marks a place where we started to go backwards. But you know when I left in 1994 there was a little bit of hope there was it was a time when Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander knowledge was actually being taught in schools. But I was you know wondering how this cycle of um, ongoing ignorance was was really going to be changed. And the, the other thing that I learnt while I was living there was that Binjara and Yonjara peoples have a lot of knowledge that they've developed and that has not been developed by Western knowledge. I guess that was part of my question. How on earth could I, as somebody who also barely knew anything about this knowledge, could promote it as being important? It wasn't until the year I turned 50, 2007, that I encountered the foresight community. And that was in Oyen. You may remember, Peter, I met you? Yep because you came to run a process uh, with Steve Valance, who was one of your students. So later that year, I signed up and uh, started doing the Masters in Strategic Foresight and travelling to Melbourne to, to do that course for a couple of years. And it was there that I encountered the TED Talks by Hans uh, Rosling, which was profound for me because it Gave me reason to believe that my optimism was well grounded. I guess in my optimism, in often talking to people about what's possible, people have often retorted that uh, I'm just naive, mm-hmm. but seeing Hans Rossland's statistics <laughs> made me realise that You know, what I want and what I believe in, uh, the the possibility for not just humanity, but for all of life uh, on Earth to be all that it can be, you know, is, is feasible. And we are in this huge universe that we are the only life that we know of. And life is pretty wonderful. You know, we sense things, we witness the wonder of the universe, and we play our part So I'm excited, I guess as excited about longevity as Alison Dupman expressed in her podcast. Mm. Um, But I'm not focused on individual longevity. (laughs) I'm focused on the longevity of the collective of life on Earth, humanity and the biosphere. Excited that that could go on for as long as we can not even imagine. Question
0: two, which will be interesting, is where I ask the guest to talk about a framework or a philosophy or an underpinning theory that goes to the core of who they are and what they do. So what do you want to talk to the listeners about?
1: Yeah. So in the broad spectrum of possible futures, I've spent most of my career working on desired futures working with people on visioning and strategic planning. I believe that our closest connection to futures is through our collective aspirations and our collective commitment, which generate our collective stories and which drive our purpose of humanity and possible futures. And Yuval Noah Harari, who wrote Homo Sapiens, A Brief History, makes the point very strongly that the power of human story drives human behaviour. And a most important factor in determining collective aspirations is ensuring that all human voices are heard and the other voices of not only humans that haven't been born yet but the other life on this planet, Mm. that all of that is important. There's a lot of futurists who work as facilitators, uh, assisting other people to consider future possibilities. I spent most of my time doing that. One of my biggest gigs was with 89 people, considering the future of regulation for veterinary and agricultural chemicals. And there were 80% of the people in the room were men. And in an attempt to gain some gender balance and also in a, an attempt to create a personal connection to the future of these regulations, I invited the 89 people there to bring along a 30-year-old grandchild from the future and also the opposite gender to themselves. Right. It was a very simple technique or to introduce right. as part of the strategic planning, but it, it turned out to be very powerful and it did give people a personal connection So one of the other things that was said during the Masters of Strategic Foresight was that social change takes place through academic research and I immediately reacted to that and shut up my hand and said, (laughs) wait a minute, what about all the social movements? And I quoted Nikki Winmar pointing to his skin saying, I'm black and I'm proud of it. And surely, you know, Rosa Parks' actions and Martin Luther King's speech uh, have been much more influential than than academic research. But somehow over the five years, I started to think that maybe I could do a PhD that might help non-Indigenous peoples to unblock their ears and eyes to knowledge and to the environment. You know, one of the words that um, I heard so often on the Anangu Pignijara, Yankanijara lands was Watarku, which I can't pronounce very well because I can't pronounce my R's very well, but Watarku means uh, oblivious. And it was something that people were always surprised at how oblivious non-Indigenous people were to uh, the environment around them. An Aboriginal education team from Western New South Wales reported that these ways of thinking and planning are our great gift to a world that desperately needs solutions. Unfortunately, this gift has not been accepted yet or even noticed. And this became the focus of my PhD. Why is it that this knowledge is not even noticed? In doing the PhD, I was working on a desired future of my own, one whereby Indigenous Australian knowledge becomes part of Australia's knowledge and thinking and something that's shared with the world as knowledge and ways of knowing that help humanity to understand that we are part of ecology, not above it. And I think a few of the people that you've interviewed in podcasts have used those words. I framed the PhD using Wilbur's Integral Theory and All Quadrant, All Levels AQUAL Framework because you're know, wicked problems and addressing the status of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in Australia is a wicked problem. It needs to be addressed using a comprehensive, not a siloed approach and... Um, Big history is such an important part of integral theory and of of foresight that even models um, that are put forward as applying to all of humanity that have been built on supposedly all of humanity have not taken Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander knowledge into account. There were A few pieces of literature that I'd like to talk about that are significant to this statement. Futurists are just a microcosm of the larger society, particularly in relation to Indigenous Australian knowledge. And a guy called Eric Mogberg, who was reporting on the first International Foresight Conference back in 1969, stated that. There are primitive societies which could be called societies, for example, the Aborigines of Australia. And this notion of Aborigines being the most primitive people in the world, I have seen crop up all over the place in literature and media and even one of the podcasts somebody said, you know, futurists sometimes say humans have evolved from hunting and gathering through agriculture and you know this is where uh, i bring in the some of this literature that harari who who wrote the books on homo sapiens refutes that agriculture was a great leap forward for humanity he says that uh, aboriginal people were exposed to the western concepts of agriculture at least 5000 years ago and rejected it hmm. because they knew that they had a system that was superior and agriculture as it was practiced in Western and Eastern societies led to fast increases in populations, but also vast declines in the quality of human life, the quality of human knowledge and the quality of the biosphere. You know, only now are people uh, starting to talk about projects for doing soil regeneration. And so this is why big history is so important to understand. If if we don't understand humanity's real journey, we don't have any hope of understanding its possible futures. And another myth about Western knowledge that Harari debunks is that literacy was a great leap forward in human society. He says that writing led to fraud. I was taught in school, as I think many Australians were, that verbal language is unreliable and, and being like a game called Chinese whispers. There's a PhD on sea level rise by Nunn and Reed. It's been done on 21 different Aboriginal language groups from around Australia. Uh, stories about sea level ri- rise that have lasted for over 7,000 years. Mm. And we know this because it matches the geological evidence in those places. So Western knowledge has nothing comparable to maintaining such knowledge accurately for over millennia and over generations. When I attended the Gama Festival in East Arnhem Land in 2019, I joined many women before dawn, a day when the Yolngu women gathered us to sing they sang for us about the dawn bird. And as they sung, mm-hmm. they paused and on cue, the dawn bird spoke. And also during that same Gama festival, Galaroy Unapingle told us that for every insect that you see, for every seed that appears on our country, we have a song for it. And it's something that Harari says in his book that hunters and gatherers had far superior knowledge about their environment, including astronomy, than than after the agricultural revolution. So another paper in my literature review is a genome study that was done by Rasmussen and a whole bunch of other people in uh, 2011. And in it, they conclude that there were two waves of modern humans who left Africa. The first modern humans left at least 75,000 years ago. And these, they say, are the people who became the Aboriginal people who occupied Australia. And it was not until at least 24,000 years later that the second wave of modern humans left Africa, becoming Mm -hmm. every other human being on the planet. So that includes the... North American and South American Indian nations that were said to be about 15,000 years old. Not that that diminishes the knowledge that they developed, it doesn't. It just points out the uniqueness of the 60,000-year-plus years of knowledge known to Indigenous Australians. And First Nations peoples have attempted to teach this knowledge since settlers arrived in Australia. But this aspiration has not been met with interest from Australians to learn. In using Theory U to explore the images being held by non-Indigenous peoples about the future of Indigenous Australian knowledge, I gained a lot of rich text. And what emerged was a spectrum of attitudes, not only those of the participants, but of their perceptions of attitudes across Australian society. The barriers to perceiving Indigenous Australian knowledge are part and parcel of a meta-narrative that has been taught in Western knowledge. And this meta-narrative and related metaphors negate and repel Indigenous Australian knowledge, equating it with early humans and discounting it as primitive and unchanging. Its innovations and adaptability have been concealed thus propagating erroneous ideas about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples that are prevalent in Australia, Australian society today, even among the more progressive thinkers. My thesis posits that there is a significant proportion of Australian society who hold on to attitudes of progressive inertia, by which I mean progressive enough to recognise that this knowledge is potentially valuable to human futures, but inert because we still have these large splinters of the colonial narrative within our own thoughts. And we think that the problem is with the people who voiced these ideas and have even more racist ideas at the lowest end of the spectrum. But by those of us with progressive ideas, removing these erroneous, preconceived ideas from our own thinking, we can progress Australian society toward the futures that we all desire. Thanks, Karen.
0: That's interesting. So interested to move on to question three, because the one where I ask you to now just talk about the things you're paying attention to in the emerging futures around you, you know, clearly, you know, with what you're thinking. There must be things that you're seeing now that give you hope and also you're seeing things that possibly give you concern. So, so what are the emerging futures that you're paying attention
1: to? Existential hope in, in human society and in our biosphere. So going back to Hans Rosling's uh, TED Talks, his main message is that the seemingly impossible is possible and that we could have a good world You know, he says that the Gates Foundation and UNICEF and all the rest are are saving the whole survival of the planet by making sure that the poorest two billion people have access to health and education. And, you know, he says, Rosling says that he's not a pessimist or an optimist, but a very serious possibilist. Great term. Yeah, and I think that that's where I sit. He says that uh, the media has turned our fears into erroneous, preconceived ideas. And, you know, I I guess that's what I see Australia battling with, and that's what my PhD has been on, is what is it that non-Indigenous people need to unlearn to be able to hear the wisdom that's available to us? And there is so much Indigenous Australian knowledge that has survived, which is amazing. You know, Rosling leaves us with For rules of thumb about the future as a way to approach the future, that most things improve, that most people are in the middle, that countries need social development, and fourthly, that the things that we fear are unlikely to kill us. The things that we aspire to (laughs) don't be ruled by our fears, that
2: Hmm.
1: preconceived ideas about Indigenous people. It's like your Peruvian restaurant.
2: Yeah.
0: Here was a bunch of people that believe they could create a restaurant that people would want to travel to.
1: Yep. It's our preconceived ideas about Indigenous Australian knowledge that's quite likely to keep us away from valuable knowledge that could assist us, not only as a collective, but as individual people, if we knew more about our environment, how to um, mitigate and manage through climate change.
0: Well, seventy thousand years' experience of surviving on a fairly hostile planet must teach you. Well, in a very in a very inhospitable country, <laughs> <laughs> teaches you a lot about how to act- how to actually sustain
1: life. Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, indications are that you know, while the knowledge across the nation, you know, over seven hundred different language groups that develop different knowledge, the same kind of interaction. Took place in Australia. That took place with the other wave of humanity. In that there was knowledge that was shared, and so people learnt from each other. When I was doing the um, the Masters of Strategic Foresight, I started thinking about four categories of knowledge that fit together in my mind as kind of a literacy of the land. And you know, while I can't really talk about Indigenous knowledge because I know so little about it. I have found that I need to give non-Indigenous people, especially those scratching their heads, some clues. So, you know, one is the 21 stories from around Australia. That fits into a category of enduring narrative. Then acute observation, an example is of a Jadjawurrung woman who heard the larvae of a moth under the bark of a tree several feet away and alert responsiveness. You know, when Flinders sailed around Australia in 1801, he and his Marines docked near present-day Albany in WA and the Marines in his crew, they paraded on the beach and the Noongar people were watching this and were able to reenact that performance over 30 years later when the settlers arrived. So you know what a superb example of foresight that the Noongar people studied every move of these strange people who landed, and then were able to reenact it. They, mm. thirty years later, from the uh, the person out the front bending their elbow and uh, putting their hand up by their eye and wiggling their fingers, and the you know the row of marines copying it. So in you know, that kind of detail. Mm. Acute observation and alert responsiveness is what part of what we need in and as well as enduring narrative and holistic attentiveness. So holistic attentiveness to our environment, we're suddenly at clues of that from fire management. Over 30 years, Western science has been studying First Nations fire management in Australia, but so much uh, has been missed because it's taken a long time for academic papers to actually start to pick up the level of complexity that's being observed and managed within what's going on. And you know, one of my participants mentioned back burning as a way of describing the fire management and it's so much more complex than that. Masochi has a great piece of literature that I reviewed that details the kind of complexity that we're really dealing with. I guess another great example is, you know, the aquaculture that is at Budjbim, uh, where the Gunaljumara people moulded the hot lava, you know, which poured thousands of years ago to create streams that in, in, enticed eels into their living areas so that they had fresh food. They were doing geoengineering. Yes, exactly. <laughs> So it's not about dominating their environment by using the environment, the agency of the environment, but working with the environment to live with nature and, and not dominate it, but to to nurture all of our biosphere and this knowledge of uh, reciprocity rather than domination. It, it was true of genders and neighbours and, you know, again, I'm not, a person who can really speak about this knowledge, which is um, but there's so much more to human consciousness and spirituality that, that other people need to talk about. Thanks, Karen. Fourth
0: question, the communication question. So how do you explain what you do to people who don't necessarily understand what it is you do?
1: Yeah, Uh, I tell stories like the ones that I've shared with you. You think that it's difficult talking about futures to people who've never considered it. Try talking to Australians with preconceived ideas about Indigenous Australian knowledge and add to that that as a non-Indigenous person, I can't really speak about Indigenous Australian knowledge. I find that to be a real challenge and in both of those I tell stories and by talking with people I try to find stories that create some traction Mm. and also a bit of a stretch for them. So, you know, there are some people who just won't hear stories, some stories, So, but that's how I try to navigate. You are
0: not talking – I mean, you don't mind talking to people down the end of um, opposition, but your real audience is the people that you think – are closest to making the shift.
1: Yeah, certainly now it is. That's exactly the space that I'm in now, is <laughs> not worrying at all about that other end of the spectrum, but trying to get Australian society to move forward by working on what I think is potentially the largest part of Australian society, this category of progressive inert, trying to have those ourselves listen and learn and wake up to the idea that we can recognize our place in uh, as being part of the ecology, not above it, by learning this kind of knowledge. And not only that, but relationships. I don't the
0: want people- to put it on the next generations to do this better, but is there anything in the generational shifts that you think gives you hope that actually, is it possible that younger people are more readily to make the shift that you're talking about?
1: Uh, Yes and no. Uh, I guess over the last 200 years, certainly back in the 1990s, there was promise that younger people were learning things in school about First Nations knowledge. And, and, you know, First Nations peoples were being invited into schools for a little while there until it was stopped and there's a you know a horrible story about what happened in education uh, all of which I've documented in the literature review but the you know hope comes from people having access to to knowledge and and not being beaten down and you know, if if the people who are strongly committed to the colonial racist narrative if they they continue to be in charge or in positions of influence with education, then no, it's not going to help our younger generations. Mm. The reality is that as a nation we are moving toward learning from our First Nations peoples and wanting to know more about our biosphere. And there are lots of uh, examples around the world of people working on regenerating soil you know things that are mitigating the damage of agriculture so there are all kinds of, ha- of things that are happening that are moving us forward and they continue to have an impact on our younger generation so yeah. there's that hope the the slowing factor is if we continue to allow these preconceived ideas to keep influencing our younger people it would continue to slow this process thanks karen
0: Last question. In terms of closing off what you've said, we've covered a lot of ground on on your research and the fundamental nature of the shift needing to happen amongst the positive thinking
1: people going forward. What I wanted to talk about here is the preposterous futures, the unthinkable, the unimagined, the unimaginable futures, it seems to me that there are three human constructs that we can use to prepare for those. You know, One is knowledge, uh, some of which we've been talking about, and definitely that, that relates to our knowledge of the environment. And secondly, something that you talked about with Slaughter and Lombardo about Wendell Bell, enthusiasm for possible human futures. Mm. I think that that is crucial. And to me, a colleague once showed me a video of a list of not for profit organisations that had started after World War II. They were inspired by wanting to work for human peace. And this list reached from the Earth to the Moon. Hans Rosling's statistics and the way that he talks about the measures that show that human development is improving is one. And the other is whenever I've listened to speeches by Australians of the Year, they always talk about how profoundly humbling the experience has been for being nominated as the Australian of the Year because they've started off with a room of a hundred people who've been nominated from each state and territory for all of various categories, the young and the senior and the local hero and and every one of these peoples has an inspiring story, and that's 100 people every year. So just looking Mm -hmm. at the maths of it, you know, 100 people who are actively working to shape humans, human futures in a positive way, and, you know, Australia's population is three thousandths of the global population or, you know, 0.03%. You know, therefore there's uh, at least... 33,333 inspirational people over the world every year working on shaping positive futures and, you know, more than I could ever read about. So I think that there is plenty of reason to be excited about potential good futures. And thirdly, you... also agreed in the conversation with Wendell Bell about at the centre of creating futures should be ethics, uh, ethical values, and um, Zia Siddhar also stated that all virtues are the only tools that we have to navigate post-normal times. Ethical values and virtues extend beyond our familiar images. So creating futures that are ethical and open require that we hone those virtues in the present that we bring those virtues to bear on present issues beginning with ourselves so to me preparing for all possible futures means honing these qualities through dealing ethically with the real mo- moral issues of our time and two of those are how humans relate to our biosphere and how humans relate to each other. And Australia has been given an important invitation in the form of the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Our First Nations peoples have invited us to treat them as equals, something that this country is yet to do. And I think that by taking up that opportunity, we are enabling a totally new uh, possible future for Australia.
0: Mm. That's good.
1: So, Karen, on behalf
0: of the FuturePod community, thanks for taking some time out to talk about uh, your journey, your very, very important work, and thanks very much for participating in FuturePod.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much, Peter. It's been fun.
0: This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.